This morning's scripture passage is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 35. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of the honey? How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. They struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aegeon, and the people were very weary. The people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Good morning. Leadership is important. We all know that at some level, right? I mean, that's why we care about who gets voted into office. Because leadership matters, it's important. Leadership can be used to do great good, like the leadership of an Abraham Lincoln, for example. Or leadership can be used to do great harm, like a Adolf Hitler or a Muammar Gaddafi or others. We could list many. Leaders can help people become more and more who they were created to be by God. Or leaders can tear people down and squash them through how they lead. What's the difference between these two types of leaders? The leaders that do great good and those who do great harm. And to be even more pointed, what kind of leader are you? What kind of leader am I? You may say, well, I'm no leader, I'm just a follower. You know, I'm, I just hide out. You know, I don't have any leadership position. But I like the way Dan Allender puts it. He has a way of including all of us. 
He says, A leader is anyone who has someone following her. If anyone looks to you for wisdom, counsel, or direction, then you are a leader. If there is one little girl who looks at you and says, Mommy, then you are a leader. If there are 14 high-energy boys holding aluminum weapons and screaming that they want to be the first to hit the ball that rests on a rubber t-ball frame, then you are a leader. (laughs) It only takes one child grabbing your finger with a small, sometimes trembling hand to signify that you are a leader. And then he concludes this way, anyone who wrestles with an uncertain future on behalf of others, anyone who uses her gifts, talents, and skills to influence the direction of others for the greater good is a leader. Anyone you influence shows that you are a leader. Well, in 1 Samuel 14, this passage that David just read, we get insight into Saul, into what makes him tick. And as we look at Saul, who is the bad kind of leader, we get insight into what both kind of leaders are like. Now, I know that you can categorize leaders into all kinds of groupings, and there's many books about leadership out there talking about personalities and styles and all of that, but the Scripture seems to especially describe two categories of leaders, and that's what we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at the heart, essentially, of a leader. And as we look at Saul, ask yourself, what kind of a leader am I? Pray with me, would you? Lord, as we think about leadership, we all have leaders in our lives and we all exert leadership. Thank you that you are the perfect leader, Lord. You are a perfect example. May we learn from you today as we look at Saul's life about ourselves that we might learn to lead as you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first kind of leader, the Saul kind of leader, can be summarized pretty easily. A leader who serves himself. A leader who serves self. self Self-serving leader. Let's set the context for this passage again. Remember, this is a huge battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Israelites were totally overwhelmed by numbers and weaponry, technology. But Jonathan went and struck some of the Philistines and it created a panic. They were terrified. The Philistines began to run. God caused an earthquake. They knew that God was against them. And they fled down the canyons toward the coast. The Israelites gathered together and began to run after them, began to attack them, began to kill them. Verse 23 says, So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. Lord, the warrior, is fighting on behalf of Israel. It's a great victory of God that Israel gets to be part of. What an incredible day. What a wonderful day to be part of what God is doing, to join in the battle. should be a time of joy, of victory, of praise, of delight because they get to be in on what God is doing and be part of defeating the enemy. But notice what it says in verse 24. The people were hard-pressed on that day. (laughs) 
life was bad for them. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. But notice what it says. For, because the reason they were having a bad day in this battle was because Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Notice the insight into Saul's life. You know, people often reveal what's in their heart by their words. It's especially true in Scripture, and we see that here in this passage, in this verse. We see Saul revealing his heart. Think about his words for a minute. How does Saul view this battle? Whose battle is it? What's his concern? Whose honor is at stake? Whose enemies are these? Now, God is fighting the battle. They're the enemies of Israel. They're the enemies of God's people. They're the enemies of God, ultimately, because they're, they've come to attack His people. But notice how Saul views it. <laughs> Not that way at all, does he? He put the people under a curse until I have avenged myself against my enemies. Paul's leadership is what? All about Saul. He sees this war. He sees his leadership. He sees the battle as all about him. For Saul, leadership is about serving self, making sure he is successful, making sure he looks good, making sure the people follow him. And the people are there essentially to help him accomplish his goals. Very insightful. This is what can be called self-serving leadership. Self-serving leadership. And by the way, this is the most common kind of leadership in our world today. We've all served at times under self-serving leaders. They may have different personalities and approaches, but deep down, the bottom line is always they have a personal agenda that as long as you meet their agenda and cooperate, it's great, but you better not get in the way of their agenda or you'll get into trouble. I worked for one boss in a church who liked me a lot when I made him look good. <laughs> but as God began to use me in other ways that maybe complimented him, I think in some good ways, but didn't always promote him, he began to get more and more antagonistic, and eventually I was forced to leave. Many of you have experienced scenarios like that, and yes, it happens even in the church. There are many Saul's in leadership today. Notice Saul's curse. Cursed be any man who eats anything today till sundown. Now think about that. They're in a battle. They're in a war. They need strength to fight the enemy. They're chasing them down these canyons, miles and miles down these canyons as they're running away. And Saul says, Cursed be those who eat anything. Why did he make a this kind of oath, this kind of curse. We're not told in the passage. Part of it may have just been ego, pride, 
I'll get the people to do what I want. Most commentators think that probably there was a religious meaning to this that Saul was saying essentially, I need, we need God on our side, so let's do something of self-denial. If we just deny ourselves, maybe God will help us even more. Maybe we can get God to bless us even more. So he's trying to somehow get God on his side that much more. The commentator J.P. Folkman says this, A general who withholds food from his army during the battle is not quite right in the head. And if he clothes that decision in religious form as well, he is certainly possessed by an evil spirit. Interesting. People need sustenance for the battle, right? We need need to have our needs met, but Saul's not thinking about the needs of his army. He's thinking about getting what he wants. And this whole thing of self-denial, let's just camp on that for just a minute. Saul is thinking, apparently, it seems, he's thinking, if we just deny ourselves, then God will bless us more. Uh, Do you recognize that thinking in yourself sometimes? If I just deny myself, if I just, you know, go to church more or whatever, if I just do X or don't do Y, then God will bless me more. Well, folks, that's foolish thinking. That's Saul-ish thinking. God blesses you and me, not because of anything we do, but because of Jesus Christ. That's it. You and I are blessed only because of Christ. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Self-denial won't help it. We're blessed only because of the grace of Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. And Jesus wants us to remember that. Now, I'm not saying self-denial is a bad thing, but it depends on your motive. Are you denying self to manipulate God to bless you? That's wrong. Or are you denying yourself so that you can focus more clearly on Jesus and Jesus alone to make him the center of your life and to let go of other things for a time, perhaps? That's okay. I think that's a good reason for self-denial. So he makes this curse and the people are out fighting and they enter this forest, it says. And guess what? They're in a battle, they need sustenance, and what does God provide? Honey. Quick energy. Great source of energy, as athletes know. It says there's honey on the ground and then it says honey was flowing on the ground. This was a land of milk and honey. This was a great blessing from God and all the people are afraid to eat. But Jonathan didn't hear Saul's oath. Why? Because when he made the oath, Jonathan was off fighting the Philistines while Saul was hiding in Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. (laughs) So he didn't hear the oath. He sees the honey. Wow, some energy so I can really fight. He scoops it up with the end of a staff and eats some and his eyes brighten. He's energized. He's got what he needs to continue in the battle. And then someone says, Hey, your dad... King Saul said, Cursed be anyone who eats until sundown. Interesting. Interesting. How does Jonathan respond to that rebuke? 
Verse 29, Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Those are strong words about his father. Jonathan is essentially calling his father a fool. The king. That's pretty tough. But he's recognizing the foolishness of Saul's command here. He uses a word, troubled. It's a Hebrew word, akar. It's used in Joshua chapter 7. You, let me remind you of what goes on in Joshua chapter 7. The people of Israel have crossed the Jordan River and they've come and they're beginning to take the land and Joshua is leading them to defeat the enemy. They march around the city of Jericho. The walls collapse. And God says clearly, don't take anything from the city. It's all meant for destruction. Don't take any plunder. One man, Achan, takes from the plunder, but no one else knows. So the Israelites are thinking, man, God's fighting for us. Let's go take Ai. And they send some troops to take Ai, and they get defeated. And so they start seeking the Lord, and they say, Lord, what's going on here? And it comes down, and they find out Achan has kept some of the plunder from Jericho. And the word there that's used of Achan is he has troubled the nation of Israel, gotten them in big trouble. What happened to Achan? Achan, remember? They stoned him. They put him to death. Commentator Robert Bergen says this, Jonathan's use of this term casts an ominous shadow on Saul's destiny. As a reader in Israel would have read this, they would have said, oh yeah, like Achan. Oh yeah, Saul is like Achan. He's troubled the people. And this comment by Jonathan highlights the division between Saul and Jonathan, his son, doesn't it? That the son is pointing out the foolishness of his own self-serving leader, father, where Jonathan is a man of faith who's following God's first. It highlights the fact that when you're a self-serving leader like Saul, you begin to put up walls between you and other people, even your own family, the best people around you. They see your selfishness and are put off by it, and you end up driving away the people that are your best people, the most important people in your life. Let's talk a little bit about this. Saul and Jonathan will have more opportunity in future passages, but think about for a minute this division between a father and a son. Let me just say that some of you, maybe most of us in this room, have experienced some of that. Maybe we've had a father or a mother, perhaps, who have been self-serving who have been even evil, you could say. How should we respond to that? Well, I'm struck by Jonathan's response here. Jonathan faces the reality of what his dad is like. He faces the truth. He states it. I think that's important for us to face the reality of maybe what they are really like, those who have harmed us, even our own parents. But it also strikes me that Jonathan doesn't stop there. He continues to look for ways to serve and to love his father with a tough love, but he keeps 
loving him. He stays with him. He dies with him in battle later in 1 Samuel. He never gives up on his father. So it's a good picture for us, a model for us, how to respond to those who do us harm. Well, what's the result? Jonathan says it real clearly at the end of verse 30. For now, the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. You see, this was an opportunity for the Philistines to get hit with a knockout blow. They could have been wiped out if the people had only been able to eat and had the energy to keep fighting and keep driving them all the way to the coast. But instead, they were only able to drive them about 15 miles because they ran out of energy. And therefore, it wasn't a knockout blow. The Philistines continued to come back for more rounds, more fights, more battles for the rest of Saul's life. And eventually, the Philistines kill Saul's sons and cause Saul to commit suicide at the end of 1 Samuel. All because Saul was so self-serving that he didn't make a wise choice. How sad. How sad. But again, Saul's not all bad. At the end of the, this section, the people are sinning. They're killing the animals. They're starving. Now it's now evening, so the curse is off. But they're starving, so they're killing animals, and they're not draining the blood, and they're eating them as quickly as they can because they're starving. God had made very clear in the law, do not drink the blood of animals. Why was he so concerned about that? Well, because pagan cultures, even today, but all through history, have known that the life is in the blood, and if you drain the blood, people die. And so they would drink the blood, and again, even pagan cultures today, they drink the blood to try to get life There's somehow, if I can just get the life from this, then maybe I'll be stronger, I'll be healthier, I'll live longer. And God says, no, don't drink the blood because I want you to get your life only from me. Only from me and not from anything else. So they're sinning against him. Saul knows it. And so he does something to get that stopped. He says, roll a rock over here, let's slaughter the animals, drain the blood, and then you can eat them, and it's okay. So he does seek to stop the sin of the people. He builds an altar. Saul's not all bad. But notice he's having to do this because he got the people starving. He's having to clean up his own mess. And when you're, when you're a self-serving leader, this is what happens. You end up burning a lot of energy having to clean up the messes that you caused yourself. Covering up your own bad choices. Well, it would be bad enough if a self-serving leader only did harm to himself, but this text emphasizes the harm that happened to all the people. I want to walk back through the text and just highlight some things that the text emphasizes the harm that Saul did to them. Verse 24 The men of Israel were hard-pressed. That word, the Hebrew word there, means oppressed in a terrible way. It's used first in the Old Testament to describe the people of Israel under the slavery in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when they were slaves in Egypt. And they were taskmasters, it's the same word, oppressors, over them. 
that were beating them and whipping them and causing them to work and they were dying from it and they were having to make bricks without straw. And that's that same word. You see, the people were greatly oppressed because of what Saul did here. Why are they in such a bad situation? Because of Saul. Also, they were deprived. It says none of them ate anything because of this oath. They were deprived of their very needs to be met. A self-serving leader doesn't care about the needs of the people under him. He or she only cares about himself, and therefore people end up being deprived of the things they need. The people were also fearful. Verse 26, it says, No man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Think for a minute. They're in a battle with the Philistines. All their energy should be going to fight the Philistines for God. And yet, where's their energy going? They're afraid. They're, they're afraid of what Saul will do to them if they eat. And so in their terror, in their fear, they don't eat. They deprive themselves. If you've had a self-serving leader, you know what that's like. <laughs> that kind of boss, one who makes you live in fear, who you're always kind of looking over your shoulder just to make sure he's not angry or she's not angry at you and after you and... You never know when the hammer might fall and you might get either humiliated or even fired. That's what happens with a self-serving leader. You end up living in fear. And you also end up living an exhausted kind of life. Twice in this text, at the end of verse 28, at the end of verse 31, it says, And the people were weary. And in the end of verse 31, And the people were very Weary. This word for weary is used earlier in the scripture to talk about complete exhaustion. Like Sisera in the book of Judges, who was so exhausted he laid down in a tent and he was so out of it because he was fleeing from the Israelites that Jael took a tent peg and drove it through his head. He couldn't defend himself in his exhaustion. It's the same word as here. The Israelites were exhausted because they hadn't had food. Saul had brought people into danger by getting them exhausted. This is one of the ways that self-serving leaders break the morale of the people under them. Because you always feel like, I'm exhausted, this job is not fulfilling, I'm frustrated because I'm tired all the time, I feel like I'm always trying to please this boss and I never can. So it makes you weary to work for them. And then finally you see how working for that kind of boss makes it easier to sin. The people were sinning, right? They were eating the blood. They were killing these animals when they shouldn't have been with the blood in it. But why were they doing that? It's because they were starving because Saul had put them in that position. It doesn't defend what they were doing, but... It makes it more prone. You know the attitude? You probably have been there. Hey, my boss is really selfish. My parent is really selfish. Whoever, this leader in my life is really selfish. So I've got to look out for myself and be selfish myself. <laughs> what should we do if we have a self-serving leader over us? Well, I just want to remind you of one verse in the New Testament. There's several that we could look at, but one thing to keep in mind if you have that kind of leader over you 
in your family, in your work, whatever it might be. Colossians, it says, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. It's a reminder that no matter what kind of boss you have, what kind of leader is in your life, you can do your work heartily as unto the Lord because your, your real boss, your real leader is the Lord Jesus. He is Lord. He is over your boss. You don't need to fear your boss. You can work heartily without being exhausted. You can do what's right because you are serving God, ultimately, not your boss. And that will help you in the midst of living with a self-serving leader. Well, what's the other kind of leader? We don't see it in this passage, but I just want to highlight it for you. The other kind of leader is a servant leader. Rather than self-serving, a servant leader. Somebody who you sense is really out for your good, who is serving you and ultimately serving the Lord, who is out to see you be successful, who is out to bless you. I just want to read briefly three passages in the New Testament that talk about this kind of servant leader. Just to highlight it for you, it's a study that could be really deep, but I want to look first at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll just highlight a couple things from each of these passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is talking about his own ministry. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, So we speak, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. Two things to highlight from that. Again, we could look at more, but number one, you see that Paul is serving God first, not others and not himself. See, a true servant leader always has in mind that I have a master over me. I'm not the ultimate boss. He is, and I answer to him. So I want to make sure I'm always serving him first and not myself. And you also see in that passage Paul's suffering, how he was willing to suffer for them. True servant leader is willing to suffer for the sake of those he is leading. She, a true servant leader, she is willing to deny herself to help those she's leading become more and more successful in what they're doing. They're willing to suffer for their sake. Another passage, Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Paul again, describing his ministry. We proclaim him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man or woman complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Again, I want to highlight two things from that. You see that the goal of a servant leader is always to present every man or woman complete in Christ, to help every person be at their very, very best. I hope you've had leaders in your life like that, that you felt like, wow, 
He or she is there for my sake and they're really trying to help me be successful at what I'm doing. That's a wonderful picture. Wonderful picture. And notice he says, and we do this according to the power of God in me. That's how we strive. That's what we depend on. A true servant leader sees that it's God's power in me that allows me to give myself away for those that I'm leading. Beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. And then the last passage is in Mark chapter 10. The words of Jesus as he's teaching his disciples. Great passage. The disciples, you know, they're not getting Jesus' view of leadership well at all. James and John have just come to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, when you come in your glory and your kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one on your left? I don't think they get servant leadership, do you? (laughs) Obviously not. So, Jesus says, after a deep sigh, (laughs) he calls his disciples to himself and says, verse 42 of Mark 10, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. You see, in the kingdom of God, for believers, we follow a different kind of leadership. He says, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus shows that the ultimate example of leadership is he himself. You want to know how to be a servant leader? Look at Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He gave up his life for us. He led us by giving up everything for us so we might become everything we were created to be. Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated for us true leadership, dying to self, putting others first for the sake of God's kingdom. I like this quote by Albert Simpson that says this, Beloved, let us mark it well. Let us not miss the warning. Let us remember forever that no man can rule others until he himself is absolutely led of God. That no man can conquer foes till he is first conquered. That no man can lead in triumph until he himself is led in triumph, the willing captive of the Savior's love and the Master's will. Every leader is different, but there are two main kinds we see in Scripture. And as we've looked through this passage, we've talked about Saul, you probably have thought about leaders in your own life, in your family, in your work, whatever. But I want to go back to my initial question. What kind of leader are you? What kind of leader am I? And if you look closely at that, probably your answer is like mine. Sometimes I'm a Saul. Sometimes I'm selfish. But hopefully I'm learning to keep my eyes on Jesus more and more so that the kind of leadership we are exerting wherever we are, in our families, in our work, neighborhoods, with children, whatever we're doing, 
is a servant leadership that, like Jesus, is willing to give our lives away. Jesus saw us when we were lost in sin, broken, helpless, unable to fix our lives. And He led by coming to earth, becoming a human, and then giving up His life for us so we might become His servants. Jesus went to the cross and led us by His servant leadership back to the Father. And by doing so, He showed us what true servant leadership is. The kind of leadership that you and I, every one of us, is called to wherever we are. Pray with me and then we'll take communion together. Lord, what a description of our own hearts so often. We confess that we are too often self-serving leaders. But we feel so trapped in that sometimes it's hard to change. We thank You that You, Lord Jesus, went to the cross so that You might set us free. You might give us not just an example, but Your very life to depend on. That You might live Your life through us, that we might be servant leaders like You. So we give You praise and thanks as we approach this communion table. We thank You for Your forgiveness. We thank You for Your example, and we thank You for Your life given for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.